listening to UWA Alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. Thanks for downloading this episode. UWA is committed to an inclusive society where every life is respected as unique and valuable. Visit our website at pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au to see how you can join with others in the UWA community to create positive change. Welcome to another fun-filled episode of the UWA Initiative on Pursue Inclusion, as well as, this is the dual branded one here, my podcast, Executives After Hours. Today on the show, this is super exciting for me, I have the pleasure to talk to Mr. Fred Cheney. Fred, how are you? I'm fine. So... Fred, I'm going, to, I'm going to assume much of my audience isn't going to know anything about Fred. So let's let's start with just a quick 10,000-foot view of of what you're known for and, and besides maybe shenanigans, what you're known for and where you're currently at right now in the world. Well, um, I've, I've been a lawyer, a politician, a public servant, um, and a fairly active citizen, and I've probably best known for something that's consistently come into my life in all of those different roles, which is engagement with Aboriginal Australians. And uh, that's been a great privilege for me and is something that's given sort of, it's a sort of golden thread that has run through all my various occupations (laughs) and um, a very good part of my life. Well, currently it's 10 years since I have paid employment, so I'm getting on a bit. (laughs) And uh, my life seemingly hasn't changed. My life as a lawyer, as a politician, as a bureaucrat, and as a citizen seems to me to have been pretty seamlessly the same. I engage in all the same activities as I did in any of those roles, and uh, I have the absolute freedom now to do pick and choose and do the things that I think are most important from from my own perspective. And so out of that list that you just provided, are there any one of those that, that you hold closer or dearer to your heart, the politician, the lawyer... Are there any one of those that, that are most important to you no, in I the think process? I think there's a unity about them. I mean, I, I didn't like studying law, but I certainly enjoyed the practice of law because once you started dealing with clients and their problems, I mean, lawyers are basically problem solvers, and I enjoyed that aspect of it. I enjoyed politics more because I think I was a better politician than a lawyer, and I suppose the, the most critical role I had there was as Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in the Australian Government way back in 1978, 1980. And again, that sort of was an important part of my political career, although I led my party in the Senate for seven years. I was what in America you call the minority leader uh, for that period. I was deputy leader of my party for a while nationally. So um, that's been good. Then working on native title was fantastic because I was able to continue the work that we did in Parliament in 1975-76 to get the recognition of land rights in the Northern Territory. And this was a chance to extend the capacity of Aboriginal people to get recognition of their connection to country right across the country. So that was pretty good. So I must say I've had a really fortunate life, a really engaged life. And I've been fortunate too to have a terrific family. I'm very proud of my brothers and sisters. I'm proud of my children. I'm proud of my wife. I think they've all been a terrific part of a life which I can only put down as being a very fortunate one. So let let me ask you that question then. You know, I mean, I was just doing a little bit of research about you, and you know, your dad really seems to be the one who kind of started the idea of government giving back. So tell me a little bit about your mom and dad and what it was like to grow up in Perth all the way back in the 50s and 60s. 
Well, my parents were um, classic sort of depression period people. Their dad got through to year 12 and had a very brief period of training as a teacher. Uh, Mum left in year 11, but went on to teach what was in those days called the art of speech, so speech and drama. And they taught in the country in a one-teacher school out on the uh, railway siding. Then war broke out and Dad joined the Air Force. And fortunately, before he went away, they had me to add to the family of one they'd had up to that point. Dad had quite an exciting war in that, although he spent a lot of it as an instructor of other pilots, he wound up doing reconnaissance for what was then called Z-Force, which is uh, really the equivalent of today's SAS. So he was up there in Borneo and he was decorated for rescuing a whole lot of Americans, actually, who had been crashed. And he did some very daring flying to land on bush strips and to ferry them out and uh, really risked his own life doing that. Came back to... Did um, your dad ever talk about the war or did you just learn that through the history books? No, no, no. No, I got that from the history books, from his his citation. And, of course, uh, there have been some books written about that particular part of the war and he, his role in it has been described. But he, he went on back to teaching and then he became very active in ex-service organisations, uh, was president of the RSL and became very well known. And then he was scooped up by the Liberal Party and test a Labour seat and he won that seat in 1955. So... At that stage, I was a 14-year-old, and so I had a lot to do with politics from that point on. How did that change um, you, though, once your dad entered politics? Like, did you did you perceive politics differently at that point? No, not really. Um, I mean, I greatly admired my father, who I think set an excellent example in terms of being concerned for other people. And, uh, you know, I think I was proud of him, and I was lucky because it brought me into touch with some very senior people in, in government in Australia at that time. And so as a teenager, I had lots of chance to exchange views with people who were right in, you know, right at the top of the system. And I think I really fell in love with politics as being an honourable profession. And I went to university very young. I was only just 16 when I hit the university, joined the Liberal Club, and uh, so commenced a long period of engagement with the Liberal Party. And then... That led eventually to my going into Parliament. So, so that's my really parents. Fun. My parents were very good parents. I mean, they, they had seven children, and all of us have prospered in our very different ways. They gave us the freedom to be what we are and who we are, and gave us a huge sense of security. I think in our upbringing. So, I think we are all deeply grateful to the start in life they gave us, which was not which was not one of wealth, but was one of absolute security in a very loving family. And I would imagine for you, you said you were number two out of seven? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's a big family, right, um, by all accounts. So were your were your parents, were they migrants to Perth or, or were they first generation? Or cause In my head, I see Perth as, you know, I lived there for four years while I got my PhD. And I just see it as this small, they say like a, a country town, a big country town. I can only imagine what it was like in the 50s. As a town, well, so there was only a few hundred thousand people in those days. But mum and dad were both born in in Western Australia. Their dad's father was born in England, but um, his mother was certainly multi generational in Australia. My mother's family, the Irish side, came out. Uh, her great grandmother came out of a small child in a very large. Irish family and the English side of the family had been around for quite a while so we were they were very much Australian in every sense West Australian in every sense and um, 
they've imbued in all of us a pretty great affection for this, so that all of my brothers and sisters, all of my grandchildren, all of our uh, all of our grandchildren um, live here in Perth. It's pretty unusual. I think there's one lawyer working in London at the moment, but for the rest of us, we are very firmly rooted in this isolated city, although it's now a city of a couple of million people. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, yeah, to your point, you don't see well, that very often nowadays, which well, obviously well, speaks speaks about the values of your family. Yeah, and it also says something about the economic opportunities that existed because, of course, when you've got a growing city and a growing economy, there are lots of opportunities. So all my sisters were teachers and my brothers were variously, well, one's a judge, one's a, you know, well, very well-known Australian businessman, the national role, and um, another's a doctor. And um, he was a, a French, did his degree in um, Renaissance French literature. So... You know, the opportunities have been quite diverse. The interests of our family are quite diverse, but we are um, absolutely bonded together. And I'm deeply grateful to all of those people who are part of what I regard as my family network. You know what? You know what's amazing about that, though, is there's this real simple lesson, you know, and, and, and I pick it up with my wife's family as well, is that when you raise your kids in a safe, secure, confident environment, the world is their oyster, regardless of the parents' upbringing. But it sounds like your parents were just very good about giving you a sense of self and security and exploration and support, which goes a super long way. And is, under, is that really undercurrent of just love your kids no matter what? Give them a hug, give them a kiss, think, just love them. I think, that's a, I think that's a very fundamental rule. I just finished reading last night, however, a book called Hillbilly Elegy. Have you heard of that? Yes. It's uh, just come J.D. Vance's book. And what he describes is the exact opposite of that, really. The, the disruption, the lack of sort of stability in so many families and the way it kills any sense that people have of being able to um, have a secure life and have aspirations which are good. So I'm curious about... The law degree, if you didn't enjoy the process, did you do it just from a political standpoint? No, I did it um, on a whim. Um, <laughs> I, Describe that whim. Well, I mean, I was, I was 15 in my last year at school, and I did very well. I got a, what's called an exhibition, and so for a brief moment I was famous, really. Uh, here's this kid who's, you know, got into this top result. And in those days, Perth was a small town, so it sort of got into the paper and all that sort of stuff. And um, I had enrolled, because the university wouldn't let me in because I was too young, I'd enrolled part-time to do economics. And they then wrote to me when I got this very good result, said, oh, well, maybe you can come. And I went for a holiday at Rottnest, which you know Rottnest, the island off Perth. And uh, uh, a law student who's been a friend ever since and came later was a silk, said to me, oh, what are you doing at uni? I said, I'm doing economics. He said, no, no, no. You'll have a much better time at the law school. So I remember I went back to Perth and swapped my enrolment. And I went home and said, oh, Mum, I've changed my enrolment. She said, oh, what are you doing now, dear? And I said, I'm doing law. And she said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it was, it, I mean, it was that sort of, it's like silly. But the fact of the matter is it's been a huge boon to me. I think that in each of my uh, lives, my working lives, the training and discipline of the law has been really valuable to me. It certainly was was obviously very helpful when I practiced law, but it was very helpful in politics and 
helpful when I was working on native title. And I think habits of analysis and an ability to make a logical case has been incredibly valuable to me in everything I've done. Well, in making those logical cases, I'm trying to I'm going to make a hard pivot a little bit here but to see how this goes. But I'm curious about the desire to help the Aboriginals. Where was that fostered and why is it so important to you? Well, it, it really hit me very early on. I suppose in my second last year at school, probably, I went and stayed on a farm and the farm had a domestic servant who was an Aboriginal girl who would have been one of the stolen generation trained up to be a domestic servant. And I was genuinely puzzled by where she fitted or didn't fit. It's really part of the theme of this thing you're doing for UWA. I mean, I didn't use the word exclusion at the time, but certainly seemed apparent to me that she didn't fit. She didn't fit in in the way that I expected everyone to fit in in Australia as I'd experienced it to that time. Um, I mean, I was brought up Catholic and I think on my mother's side that was. I'd have to say that my mother and her antecedents were really good people and on my father's side, the rather stern Protestant side, they were good people too. But I certainly think there was a huge respect for people, for everybody, you know, no one was not worthy of respect and Anyway, this, this, I was left with no more than this frankly puzzled feeling. And I, I went back to school and sometime later I said to my school friend, oh, what, you know, I asked after this girl and gave me this sort of response. He said, oh, she's like the rest of them. She's gone and got herself pregnant, so she's gone. And what really struck me at the time was how I didn't feel, because I was a priggish sort of little kid, I didn't think, oh, how awful. I thought, you know, I could understand why she would have responded to anyone who offered her anything that looked like affection, you know, so my own response to that story sort of puzzled me a bit. And then I went to university and I very quickly learned that really I lived in a segregated country. It was legally segregated. And then I went out in the wheat bins and I didn't like what I saw. The Aboriginal people living in a reserve on the edge of town and definitely segregated both socially and economically, but legally as well. I mean, they didn't have the right to vote or didn't have the right to be even counted in the census. It was sort of mad. And so I was, I suppose, offended. I, I read a book. I didn't read many books while I was studying law, but I did read one called, a bloke called Khan, which I think was called The Sense of Injustice. But everybody has a sense of things that are unjust. And I certainly felt what I was witnessing was unjust. And then I did a run next couple of years, I did a run all around West Australia, the southwest, and visited the Aboriginal reserves. Again, I was affronted, really, and found um, happy about what I saw. And I also saw the abuse of Aboriginal women by some of the worst elements of the white community. And so there were, there were accumulating things. And so we got in, I was president of the Liberal Club and um, at the university. And so I got us involved with fringe-dwelling Aboriginal people around Perth. And then we, in 1961, we wrote a submission on voting rights for Aboriginals because there was a federal parliamentary committee, which in fact led to people getting voting rights in the next year, I think it was 62. So it sort of started a series of engagements. And then as a lawyer, of course, I came across absurd and unjust situations. So often told the story of representing a woman whose six children would have been declared neglected and institutionalised. And it's the easiest case I ever did. Um, proved that she was a good and caring mother and all the children went to school and were well looked after. And yet when I went to court, court didn't seem to know how to handle a contested application. And when I ultimately had the case dismissed or the application dismissed, I was pretty violent in my language to the guy who had been representing the 
supposed welfare department. And he said, oh, well, we've had complaints. There are too many Aboriginals in East Perth and we're shifting them out. And I gave him a further round of abuse and because uh, I'm <laughs> one-eighth Irish and a bit hot-tempered. He said, oh, we've never had one. He said, we've never had one defended before, you know. I mean, I, mean, I don't know how no. you can tolerate that sort of thing in your country. It's just absurd. We, I think the, the other thing par- I'd say is that... I was just going to say, the parallels between the Aboriginals and the Native Americans is so, like, o- yeah, overlapping. It's it's horrific, really, when you start thinking about it. But, I mean, there's, there's a different parallel. It's not really a parallel, and that's the situation of, of African Americans, because I must say that my generation was very influenced by the whole decolonization debate, you know, the winds of change and all that. And... I was also hugely influenced by the American Civil Rights Movement, so that I was very of that mind, just as when I went off to New Guinea as a young lawyer, I was very influenced by the, the Peace Corps. That whole idea that you would try and change things that were wrong. And, I mean, the, the savagery of the American response to the Civil Rights Movement dwarfs anything I witnessed in Australia, I mean... I've read quite a bit of that history, you know, Taylor's The Fire Next, how does it turn Fire Next Time and various other things. And I mean, quite, you know, I, I don't know how people could be as courageous as they were in confronting the barriers they faced in the States. Now, we had a mini sort of version of that in Australia, and we had the Freedom Rides in New South Wales, which I was not a participant on, I was in Western Australia, but it was very much the spirit of the time. So you can't really, um, in a sense, there's nothing exceptional about being a creature of your time. <laughs> that, was, that was my time. So I think you know um, what I what I what I'm getting from you is is that you, as an early early on in your life, you were very impacted by the injustice of a population of Australia, and that that in some ways drove a lot of your choices that you made moving forward. And so when you started to enter government. And you essentially were the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs. Did you feel like you had a sense of empowerment to make a difference? Well, put it this way, I had a more fortunate opportunity than most to make a difference. Um, But just being in Parliament, I mean, my first term in Parliament, which was the term, uh, Whitlam's second term, we unanimously supported in the Senate the Racial Discrimination Act. We unanimously supported land rights, and which were not then legislated until we went into government in 76. But in, in that sense, the time suited me. There were opportunities to do very substantial reforms, which did actually make a difference. I mean, the biggest difference for Aboriginal Australians came in 1992 with the Mabo decision, which converted Aboriginal people from supplicants to stakeholders and, in my view, is the biggest shift in the balance of power between the settlers and the original inhabitants since 1788. There would not have been a Mabo decision without the Racial Discrimination Act. And so, in a way, you know, I, although my views in Western Australia were in, in, intensely unpopular, particularly in my own political party, in the National Party, that is the party nationally and in the Parliament and in the great sort of movements of the time, uh, I'd have to say I think I was in glorious sync. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was synchronised at the time. And so, I mean, it, it's pretty incredible when you look back at a time of immense political conflict, which 75 was. Remember, 
we brought down the Whitlam government by withholding supply in that year. But in that same year, we were able to unanimously support Racial Discrimination Act and unanimously support the implementation of land rights in the Northern Territory. So although it was very uncomfortable here in Perth, and I was voted down 200 to 10 at successive state conferences of my own political party uh, when I was minister, the fact of the matter is I found in Canberra a lot of fellow spirits, both in the Liberal Party and in the Labor Party. And it was a very constructive and positive part of my life. Uh, even later, when we lost government in 83, and I sat opposite John Button, as lead, I was then leader of the opposition in the Senate, and he was leader of the government, and we sat, you know, not more than five feet apart for seven years. And I'd have to say, at the end of that time, I felt extremely warm about him. He was a personal friend, and I remained a friend until his death. So, uh, you know, the times were different. Fred, um, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I'm just curious, why do you think that WA had resistance towards the evolution of their thoughts towards the Aboriginals, where other parts of Australia seemed to be a bit more progressive? Well, Queensland and West Australia were the hard bit, and that's because there was still a lot of uh, unallocated Crown land. And, of course, the idea that Aboriginal people could claim that was pretty scary to a lot of people. Land rights was defeated in West Australia in the 1980s when we had a Labor government in Canberra and a Labor government in Perth, both of which had promised land rights. But they both quailed in the face of intense public response to a campaign run by the mining industry, which was, in my view, racist and vicious. So the land rights movement effectively collapsed under the weight of that political attack. Can you explain and the land that, rights, the, that, that, that amendment, just for my audience? Like, what was that well, about? Well, land rights, land rights in the Northern Territory said that where Aboriginal people were still on their country and it was reserved, they would get a permanent title to it, inalienable freehold title. And they also could get an inalienable freehold title to other lands where there were no other tenures or where a tenure was held by Aboriginal people. So the result of that legislation is that about half the Northern Territory is now under inalienable um, Aboriginal freehold. In New South Wales, they adopted a quite different approach. They they took large amounts of the... They, they put a whole lot of vacant crown land into Aboriginal ownership, and they also, I think, um, allocated quite large funds out of land tax to make other purchases. In Victoria, you had very modest provision. In South Australia, the reserves in the northern part of the state were turned into Aboriginal freehold, some other areas... And so around Australia, you got sort of a bit of a sort of jigsaw of provisions which reunited Aboriginal people with their land. But of course, a lot of Aboriginal people were left out because we'd, we'd taken all the best land, all the, all the stuff that was basically arable, we, we'd already taken and put under uh, non-Aboriginal titles. But then along came Mabo, and that said that where land had not been taken and put under other titles and where... Aboriginal people could establish their connection with the country and establish that they still had a society that traced its roots back to settlement times, then they could claim native title. And so in Western Australia, huge swathes of Western Australia have come under native title. And it's been one of the great joys of my life, actually, to be part of that process. So what it has meant is that Aboriginal people... They don't get a fungible title. I think that's the expression. They don't get a title they can mortgage or sell. 
they've got a title which at least enables them to negotiate their future on that land. Has it produced Nirvana? No, it hasn't. But the work that I'm currently engaged in with many others is encouraging Aboriginal people to use their land through management of the environment and the development of various industrial opportunities that come from that, including carbon sequestration, tourism, and so on. In fact, I'm going to Melbourne tomorrow to meet with the um, BHP Foundation, which is looking at the sponsorship of something called the 10 Deserts Program, which involves all of the Aboriginal people who are managing these vast desert areas across Australia, working together to increase the value of their environmental management and increase the prospect of economic and social development. The body that I sit on the board of, which assists in getting native title, uh, decided that there was no point in just getting native title unless it led to social, economic and cultural gains. And so we're very actively involved in working with Aboriginal people to try to ensure that their life circumstances are significantly improved by gaining these additional legal rights. That, that's what I was going to ask you, is that do you see, over your history of working with this population, do you see a change in corporate attitude towards the population and the population's attitude towards, towards I guess, the nation or themselves? Like, Do you see a change or evolution in the way they're trying to approach a systemic problem? Well, I think I'd say more a revolution than an evolution, um, in that the change was pretty sudden and not really evolutionary. I made a rude remark about the mining industry funding a racist campaign. Really, until 1995, the mining industry remained obdurately and publicly opposed to recognition of Aboriginal property rights. And indeed, some of their leaders made incredibly inflammatory speeches about this, and in my view, did great damage to race relations. But in 1995, um, Leon Davis, who was the boss of Rio Tinto, made a really important speech, and he said, we are no longer going to oppose native title, we're going to work with it. And really, he started what was a very rapid revolution in the way mining companies dealt with Aboriginal people. And if I can quote Leon, he said, we, we, our last mine that we developed under our old approach was Marindu. We came late and over budget. Our first project we developed under our new approach was Yandi Yarra. And in that case, we came in early and under budget. He said, it's nice to do what's morally right and commercially advantageous. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, That's a novelty concept, right? I, I can illustrate the anecdote, you know, slightly the other way. We, we recruited a lot of very idealistic, sort of shiny-eyed people to work at the Native Title Tribunal in 1994. And we had a seminar down at UWA about Native Title, and they invited an American professor, whose name I can't remember, I'm sorry, to come out and address us. And he made a, an address about the things that mining companies did with Native Americans. And one of my co-workers, who was very shiny-eyed, got up and said, oh, professor, that was wonderful. Um, you know, do you think that mining companies really like to deal with native peoples in America? I've never forgotten his response, which was along these lines. I'm going to put on a fake American accent because I remember him <laughs> leaning on the podium and brawling. He had a big, funny, funny moustache and he leaned over. He looked like something out of a film and he said, in my experience, a mining company is at its most reasonable after you shit it over the head with a piece of 4B2. 
<laughs> and and I think Mabo was the piece of 4B2. Aboriginal people suddenly were stakeholders with the right to negotiate and, of course, sort of suddenly struck the mining industry that you you deal with stakeholders not by abusing them and crushing them, yeah, but by doing deals with them. And include so, them in the process. They get buy-in better. Yeah, and there are exceptions, but overall I think the mining industry has led the way. And then, I mean, I'm rather proud of my association with Reconciliation Australia over 15 years, and we started something called Reconciliation Action Plans, and I think there's probably a 1,000 corporations of one sort or another now that have Reconciliation Action Plans, and they usually include attempts to not only have better relationships but to assist in things like employment and if i can quote a company and i should say my brother's the chairman of this company and was chief executive some time back but west farmers is an example it's the largest employer in australia it's in retail and various other things they have virtually no aboriginal employment and um, suddenly they've got 4,000 or something. I mean, when you get a decision, listen, this is the business of all of us, and we're going to be participants in making things better, things change pretty rapidly. Only this morning I was talking to a Commonwealth bureaucrat about the very unhappy situation in Kalgoorlie. Kalgoorlie's been a place where an Aboriginal kid was run over by somebody on a four-wheel drive. It's been a lot of civil unrest. It's been pretty ugly. But he was telling me this morning that uh, both Coles and Woolworths, and another entity who's also in food retail, both now taken on significant number of Aboriginal employees in their stores. And what he told me this morning was that this has made a huge difference to the running of their businesses. There's far less theft and no civil disturbances. And so uh, if you can get into that sort of virtuous circle, uh, you really, you know, you've got it made. And I do think, I do pay tribute to Rio and BHP in particular, but now to companies like West Farmers and apparently Woolworths who really do make an effort to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So so I guess that leads me to a question in terms of how do you, how are you going to judge success with the Aboriginals being more included in the process? Like what's the definition of success for you with this issue? Well, if you want to know my ultimate definition, we're a long way from it. I mean, the ultimate definition is that the relationship with Aboriginal collective identities is settled and established and accepted, that Aboriginal people have lives which, in a statistical sense, are more akin to the fortunate lives that most of us enjoy in Australia. So there's a a symbolical relationship element and there's a well-being social economic element. I, I take huge satisfaction in the pro- progress. For example, I went to the law graduation at UWA uh, a few months ago because a couple of Aboriginal friends of mine were graduating. There were four Aboriginal graduates in that year. The week before, I think there was a medical graduation. There were six graduates. These are things that I couldn't have even dreamt of started down this track, and I, I'm really deeply grateful. I'm deeply grateful to the Catherines for the fact that they've got a substantial Aboriginal group there now, they're about to build a whole new centre on campus, but their retention rate among Aboriginal students is uh, 90%, which is way ahead of the national retention rate and way ahead of the national Aboriginal retention rate. So I'd have to take, and I, in my own organisation, the Polypharma Foundation, we have 1,650 kids in 30 or so state schools, regularly get kids through to year 12, regularly get kids going to university, going into trades. 
So there's lots of, if you like, points of light. But you've got to remember at the same time that we jail people at a rate which is horrendous. It makes the United States jailing rate look good. Is that possible? It is. I mean, I think that the rates of imprisonment and incarceration of Aboriginal people in Western Australia is absolutely world-beating, and it's horrible. The rates of child removal, not for social policy reasons, but for protective reasons, is horrific. I've just had a group of Aboriginal organisations wanted to see me about their work in this area because how can we say that we've succeeded? I mean, it's hard to talk about this without weeping, actually. I mean, the numbers are horrific. And so, you know, I have no cause for, you know, I don't have much cause for satisfaction because as long as those statistics are around, we're in real trouble. And um, at the same time, we mustn't overlook the fact that there's a large and growing and terrific Aboriginal community, both remote and in the cities. And just as an example of that, we had our 40th anniversary of the Aboriginal Legal Service dinner last year. And, you know, there were 600 people there, all dressed to the nines, all sort of, you know, functional, contributing, prosperous people. Um, when we started the Aboriginal Legal Service, you couldn't possibly have had a gathering like that. So, you know, I could talk for hours on this program about points of light, the points of progress. Let, let, talk, let me ask you I one more question about, about, about it. <laughs> let, let me ask you one more question about it from a positive perspective. In the areas or regions where you're seeing success, what are the what are the factors that are working that could hopefully be replicated? Deep cultural respect is the starting point for progress. The worst statistics are, in fact, in remote areas where people are still on their own country. So why is that? Well, because I think the government policies that have been applied in those areas are very siloed, um, but they're also very disrespectful. And in the case of the Commonwealth, for the last four parliaments, they've essentially adopted what I would regard as punitive approaches. As against that, when I work with communities, for example, in the East Pilbara, there's a wonderful organisation called KJ, which has a full Aboriginal board, but some very devoted people who serve it. And they work on a basis of absolute respect for culture and progress moves out from there. The work we're doing across the desert in land management in my view, the most productive and positive thing that I see in those remote regions. And uh, Social Ventures Australia did a, fee not a feasibility, they did an evaluation of the work which had been supported by BHP in the East Pilbara, an area in which I should say they have no minds, by the way. And they said for about $18 million worth of investment over a period, there'd been $53 million worth of gain. So I would see uh, overcoming our natural Australian proclivity to go for the assimilationist route, that is to simply require Aboriginal people to be indistinguishable from us as the solution uh, and would rather embrace a working with Aboriginal people, respecting them and working with them to find their own solutions to these things because... A repressive approach just does not work. But it seems to me, though, you know, in the question that I asked, I was like, "Where, where's the, where's the positives when it works?" And you say, you know, mutual respect for culture, and then you pivot to to 
the negative sides. And what I'm curious is that, you know, we talk about these beacons of light and hope and it has to go beyond respect for their culture to another level of, of systemic policies or, you know, transformation of beliefs to get buy-in from both sides. So is there a success story where this concept of inclusion in the Aboriginal communities really worked well beyond the, the mutual respect of culture? Well, yes, I, mean, I, I think the example I've given you, I think that what I see in East Pilbara is a real blossoming of people. And I think that's terrific. And I see it wherever we get into this caring for country work that you see people feeling a strong sense of who they are, a strong sense of self-respect, a strong commitment to doing the work that needs to be done. And uh, I see that as a real bright spot. And that and the, I suppose, the one area where across the country there has been some real progress is that there's been a significant lift alone among all the what are called the COAG targets, the targets governments have set, the number of kids completing Year 12. Statistically, Aboriginal people who complete Year 12 and get a post-school qualification are statistically as likely to have a job, as likely to have good health, as likely to have good life expectancy. So I think that's the big positive. Having a an education system which enables people to maintain their culture, maintain their pride in themselves and equips them to look the majority community in the eye and to cope with them is a formula for great success. And I see examples of that all the time. That's awesome. Okay. So I want to, I want to take this, uh, two more pivot topic pivots. So you spent a lot of years in government and by all accounts, that is a blood sport, right? When you're, when you're in politics. So, while you're the leader of the opposition party in the Senate and then the leader of the Liberal Party uh, in the Senate, talk to me about just just the the environment. You know, I've seen some of the, the the debates that go on, and it is brutal. The words that are used, the language, the cutting down, the lifting up. I mean, it's it's a it really is a verbal blood sport if you could name it anything. So. I'm just curious from from my perspective, what is it like to be in the throes of that? Is it exhilarating? Is it frustrating? Is it, is it passion-driven? Like, What is it like to just be in the middle of it? Uh, all of the above. I mean, I think that the Westminster system is based on the idea that there is a government and an opposition, and that if the government is defeated, there's an opposition ready to step up and become the government. So it's incredibly a completely different framework from the American framework where you have a an executive president. That means that there is built into the system a continuous contest and it's a contest for ideas and so on. I think the 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 problem problem was much less evident in my time, although I've just finished reading Gareth Evans' second book, which is uh, about his political and post-political life, in which he describes me as his throat-tearing nemesis. <laughs> so clearly I wasn't. Clearly I wasn't all that nice to Gareth. Uh, it's true, I probably wasn't. But on the other hand, I could work with Gareth. And the interesting thing is that I think in turn, when I look back at when I went into Parliament, which is a long time ago, more than a generation ago, we came from a great variety of backgrounds, but all of us, or most of us, had a background in community activism of one sort or another. And as a result, we had a lot of common ground, <coughs> common ground including 
know, how you thought about things, thought about problem solving. So we were able to take on some very difficult subjects in parliamentary committees and basically arrive at unanimous views. And, you know, when I look at uh, Labor politicians like, you know, John Button and Grimes, who succeeded me as Minister of Social Security, Gareth Evans, there are a whole lot of them who were extremely able people and with whom you could have, you know, a decent conversation and a decent argument and, you know, often come to some common conclusions. On my side, you know, my great friend and mentor was Peter Durack, who's a Rhodes Scholar, a very fine lawyer. He had the best political and legal mind I think I ever worked with. Um, there were a whole lot of people of, you know, Peter, Peter Bohm was a professor of medicine. There were there are people who've been in business. There are people who've been farmers. It, it yeah, sounds it, like there was a lot more, what, lot more diversity back then, and now it's it, almost like life politician. My impression of the current parliament is that there are too many people there whose skill is politics, and politics has is important. Obviously, in a democracy, you've got to know how to play the politics, but government is even more important. And I think unless you've got an overwhelming interest in good government, um, the system breaks down. So that what you should be doing in Parliament is a common search for finding the best way to govern the country. Whereas I think an awful lot of time is taken up now with a common search for how to bring the other side down. I think that Tony Abbott was an extremely effective and destructive leader of the opposition and he didn't learn much about how to be a prime minister in the process. I think Bill Shorten has learned from the Tony Abbott playbook and I hope that were he to become prime minister, he would have learned somewhere that there's more to politics than politics, that government actually matters. So, I mean, look, there's a very risky thing of introducing, talking to someone who's in his last quarter century of the century, <laughs> who may well look back to a mythical, you know, a mythical old days. But I do think there is a, an element of dysfunction in the way politics is going on in Canberra in particular at the moment. And I think that is because, in part, there is not enough diversity. There are too many people whose profession is politics. And do, you, do you think there should be a limit, involved, like a term limit? Well, no, because some of the most, some of the best leaders were in politics for a bloody long time, weren't they? I mean, what sort of term limit would you place on Bob Hawke, who, although he was in the trade unions, was basically in politics all his life? John Howard was, I think, a pretty effective prime minister. I disagreed with some of the things he did both with respect to Aboriginals and refugees, but an effective Prime Minister, he was a lifelong one. The amateur politicians um, don't seem to work. You know, the people who come in from the side without much political experience. The, the question is whether you bring to politics some deeper experience. And I think that people I was able to work with very successfully across party lines and within party lines, all had a depth of experience which enabled them to look beyond the immediate political side of things and the and, and, and to look at things as, as a matter of substance. One of the one of the great lessons I got from a friend who's now dead, Jim Carlton, who was seen as a very red tooth and claw market economist, but who in my experience always had a very good eye for human need and for well-being. But he once said to me, Fred, our job is to find the right answer. Our second job is to work out how to sell it. So I think that the search for the right answer for whatever the issue is you're dealing with is what politics should be about. Well, I was just going to say, it leads me to a question, though, because we, if we fast forward to today's world, 
and you see the discourse, which is so for and against and negative, and whether it's online, in the news, in the parliament, does it ever kind of bring the question to your mind that do these people really want inclusion and diversity, or do they just want to be with the same? I think that to want inclusion, you actually have to have a degree of empathy. Someone once said that liberal democracy grew out of the habit of reading novels. And in a funny sort of way, that made sense to me that I think in reading a good novel, you live another life and you get a comprehension of an entirely different viewpoint, an entirely different reality. I think that for some people, anyone who is different is to be biased and disagreed with. And in a way, Hillary Clinton put her finger on a really big problem, I think, when she talked about the deplorables. I mean, I think that's a terrible thing to say. And I've just read this book on the white working class in America, the other book I just mentioned, this hillbilly elegy. Hillbilly elegy. It's so easy to bias the other. And I think that once you see people as the other, the notion of inclusion becomes a bit something you can't comprehend, really. I don't want to sound biased, but for me, the critical point of principle is something that was outlined. I've often told this anecdote. I was a very troubled Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in probably 79, and the headmaster of my kid's school was leaving. He was a priest, a Jesuit priest, and he said Mass in the school hall and gave a little homily, and he said, my happiest times at the school have been saying Mass here with all of your children in front of me, each in the image of God. And I suddenly thought, of course, that's the sort of fundamental attitude you should bring to bear. And it sort of lifted a bit of a weight off my shoulders. And I suppose that is my fundamental belief that I think was imbued in my upbringing, that everybody is of value. Nobody in my family ever said each in the image of God. But I think the implication always was that Everybody, nobody was to be treated with contempt. And I think that's why I responded so much to the situation of Aboriginals as I found them as a teenager. Um, How could you deny their humanity? How could you deny, you know, it's the sort of bloody merchant of Venice. If if you prick me, do I not bleed? I mean, it's just sort of this non-comprehension of our shared humanity. I think It's that that lack of empathy and compassion you're talking about. Yeah. And, and you see it you see it when things are reported on in, in the United States, when things are reported on here, that those people are beyond the pale because they don't agree with me. That's the opposite of inclusion. I feel like it's the fastest way down the toilet bowl, so to speak. You know? Well, we agree on that. Yeah. yeah. So um, one last question about uh, the Senate. Do you miss the action or do you enjoy your life now? No, I enjoy my life now. I mean... <clears throat> I think that politics is really important, and I wouldn't have missed it for the world, but it's very hard work and very burdensome and full of dilemmas. And, you know, I keep telling myself I should be grateful to those of them who are doing that heavy lifting now. At the same time, I admit to frustration at times that I can't intervene more directly in things. I think the inanity of the government's decision on recognition over this last week is just pathetic and I do wish I could have been somewhere in there arguing the point making the point that it is a pathetic position they've adopted and so there is that frustration I confess to that but no I I wouldn't (laughs) so uh, last last question I'm really curious about Um, I have two questions and and then I'll let you run I I don't really know much anything about your family so are you married how many kids you have 
you know, how many grandkids do you have? Is that the, the happiest part of your day now is seeing your grandkids? Like, how does that play into Fred? Nothing compares. I'd have to say seeing my wife is more of a joy than my grandchildren. But my grandchildren are a joy. <laughs> my <laughs> children are a joy, and I put my children ahead of my grandchildren. Um, I have three sons. I was a, an often absent father because of politics. Angela did a magnificent job as a mother, and we have three sons of whom I'm immensely proud. They are men of, in my view, great quality and calibre. They're all good husbands. They're all good fathers. I have eight grandchildren, five granddaughters. I'm being introduced to the intricacies of girls as against boys, <laughs> boy children, um, and it is different. But, uh, no, I mean, I think I said earlier, I mean, I think we are, we are a hugely fortunate family, all of us. Um, I include my siblings and their partners and uh, our great brood of children and grandchildren. It is an unusually blessed group, and yes, they're a joy. So, do you guys get to do you get together for big Cheney parties? Uh, we only all together one day of the year, which is a week before Christmas. We get together for what we call Cheney Day, <laughs> and there's a hundred four lineup for that. I think. Um, Holy cow! The siblings. The siblings we dine together at least quarterly, but we meet regularly at symphony concerts, at ACO concerts, at all sorts of events. So we share festivals and celebrations. So on my birthday, I saw all my children, all my grandchildren. I saw, I saw one of my sisters. I heard from all the rest of them. No one didn't. I'll get it. I'll get to him later. But no, no we're a close mob, uh, but very diverse. And I'd have to say it's a sense of enormous. Well, I wouldn't say satisfaction, that's wrong. I'm deeply grateful. I'm really so grateful that we've got such a good deal among ourselves. That's awesome. So final question, Fred. Uh, for where you're at in your life, I mean, you've had this incredible journey, done incredible things, and you're still doing incredible things. I don't want to make it sound like you've checked out and you're on the side. How, how do you define happiness for where you're at in your life? In my look, happiness is a sort of, uh, I think, very subjective thing. Um, I think I require two things to be happy. I require to be happy with those around me. Uh, the personal relationships are immensely important. And I require a sense of purpose in my external life. So um, I would hate to... Uh, I can't imagine getting out of bed in the morning without having something that is hopefully useful to do. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly you know, on the decline, I have to say. I mean, I'm certainly feeling older, but... I mean, I've had a succession of meetings today. Um, uh, they'll go on until this evening. Uh, I've got meetings in Melbourne for the next few days. I've got meetings in Perth on Saturday. I have a very full and engaged life. And I think without that, I think I'd feel that my personal life was too selfish. Um, I've, I've just had five weeks holiday with my wife, and I absolutely we had a wonderful time. And it was a really good holiday, and we're going to have another holiday shortly. So I'm not that periods of great indulgence, but the fact of the matter is I think a purposeful life has to be both personal and external. That's awesome. Well, Fred Cheney, thank you so much for your time, energy, and willingness to sit down with me on this UWA Pursue Inclusion Initiative and Executives After Hours. So thank you so much for your time. That's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to UWA Alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. 
Make the commitment to leave no one behind by taking part in our movement towards an inclusive society. Join an inclusion project or inspire others to act through the great work you are already doing by visiting pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au. Thank you.